Well, welcome. Happy, happy New Year. Is it, I hope it's a good new year for you so far. I'm, I'm really, really glad that you're here, uh, uh, especially today. Uh, and that we as a church are starting off this year uh, in an attitude of, of prayer and seeking God. And if you haven't gotten your 40 days of prayer a journal yet, if you weren't here last Sunday, definitely grab one on your way out today. Uh, you can also get it in digital form on our weekly e-reach. It started January 1, so uh, you just have a little bit of catch-up to do. It's, and you could just jump right to January 5 if you want. But, uh, but we need God's wisdom and presence and direction uh, more than ever this year. Uh, many, many of you are aware that our broader denomination the United Methodist Church has been embroiled in a decades-long debate uh, about the interpretation and application of the Bible as it relates to uh, practices of human sexuality, uh, most specifically, uh, same-sex sexual practice. Over the last few years, that debate has become just more and more and more intense. Uh, such that uh, some pastors and churches, uh, out of a conviction to do what they feel is right, have actively contradicted our denomination's uh, teaching that God's design for marriage is to be a lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman. And that position was upheld at a specially called general conference uh, last year in February and will be tested again during the next general conference that is actually coming up in May of this year in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it is a very real possibility that the United Methodist Church will cease to exist as we know it. Uh, several plans, legislative plans for separation are on the table, um, including uh, the one that has made national news in just the last couple of days. Uh, but even if none of them pass, and they would have to pass before it be would become reality, um, even if none of them pass, it is likely, very likely, that a non-legislated breakup will probably occur. And over the last two years, as Deb shared, I've, I've been keeping our church council, our, our church's leadership up to date, in the loop about the major happenings and, and the wide variety of possibilities that could come about as soon as this year. And in fact, it's very possible that you all, our membership, will be put in a position to have to make some choices about uh, the collective direction of our future. Choices that we're not even aware of yet. <laughs> so our leadership felt that it was time uh, for our congregation to have the talk. For me to bring you up to speed on all the issues at hand for us to wrestle with the scriptures and to uh, join together and seek God in prayer. So we've begun our 40 days of prayer. Get your journal if uh, you didn't hear that earlier. <laughs> and now we're beginning this six-week sermon series called Holy Sexuality, the United Methodist Dilemma. And for my part, uh, I've been preparing for this series for uh, nearly two years now, and in part maybe for 20 years. Uh, but most specifically, the last couple of years, I've been reading much, much more, praying, 
uh, listening to God and, and talking and listening with people from a variety of viewpoints and perspectives. Uh, I've been praying and fasting a couple days a week since November, uh, asking God for clarity and direction for our church. And, and to be honest, I haven't wanted to spend so much time learning and teaching about human sexuality. And, and you may feel, sitting where you're at right now, that there are so many more important things for us to discuss and talk about. I mean, our, our, our nation is at the brink of war. There's so many other things going. You're going through so much in, in your lives. And, and yet, please know that I didn't choose this. But this is the issue facing our broader United Methodist Church. And this series really is a direct response to the conflict presently in our, in our broader church and really our broader culture. And, and I believe with my whole heart that God's word speaks into the most relevant topics of our day. The, the things that, that are foundational to what it means to be human. And, and please hear me, I'm fully aware and I want all of us to be sensitive to the reality that these conversations are extremely sensitive. Uh, th these aren't just issues to debate. Uh, these questions and their answers affect people we know and love deeply. People who God knows and loves deeply. It may affect you very directly. But please hear me, um, if you question your sexuality because of sexual desires that you have, or, or you identify as LGBTQ in, in some form or fashion, know that you are as loved and as welcome here as anyone else. Of course, I'm also aware then when it comes time to share with everyone what I believe, kind of where I stand and why, that some people here will breathe a sigh of relief and others of you will be deeply saddened. But I hope you all know my heart, that my sincere desire is to love and to honor God and to love people the way that Jesus loved them. And, and Jesus, out of a deep love for people, calls us to be his disciples. It's a call to follow him, to, to journey with him. And that's our mission as a church, right? To invite people on this discipleship journey with Jesus. It's, it's actually the mission of our denomination too, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Maybe you don't need me to tell you this, but but following Jesus isn't a simple or an easy task. There is a cost to discipleship, a choice. Uh, let me read Jesus' call from Matthew chapter 16. Uh, just a, a key passage in the scriptures. And Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Inherent to following Jesus is the call to suffer by, by turning away from ourselves and turning toward Jesus. Uh, the way that we find our lives 
is by losing our lives, saying no to ourselves and saying yes to Jesus. Jesus is saying that you find who you really are in a relationship with him and by following his ways, not, not following your own designs and desires. And implicit in this key passage, uh, which is also found in the book of Mark and the book of Luke, is Jesus' understanding of a biblical worldview. Now, now a worldview is simply a way that we believe the world functions, the way it works. Um, it, it shapes our values, it shapes our norms, it shapes our, our assumptions. Um, and our worldview is, is really what we believe about the nature of life and existence itself. And today, I want to spend some time just laying the foundation, clearly outlining a biblical worldview. And, and next week, I plan on sharing a bit about how there really is a powerful alternative worldview at work in our culture today, one that tells us something very different about the nature of, of existence and what leads to the best life possible. You see, the, the Bible lays an important foundation for understanding who we are as people created by God, how sin affects us, and to what end God wants to transform us as, as we follow Jesus. And without understanding this biblical worldview, which, which Jesus had, then, then it is nearly impossible to be able to understand the meaning or, or the depth of Jesus' call to deny ourselves and to take up our cross as we follow him. And I've created some diagrams to help us kind of visualize a biblical worldview, uh, really from the perspective and teaching of the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley himself. And in your message notes, there are some important concepts that uh, I hope to explain uh, well for you. Uh, you might want to take some notes. On the back side, in case you can't see what's on the screen, there are, there's the basic framework of the diagrams that I'll uh, be speaking through. But a biblical worldview can be summarized in four parts. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. First, creation. The, the Bible teaches us that, that all, of, all people are created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 states, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we'll focus more on this bodily aspect of God's image next week. But John Wesley identified three categories of what comprised the entirety of, the, of God's image in people. First, what he called the natural image. Uh, these are just things innate to personhood, uh, in, including our ability to reason and our intellect, our emotions, uh, our, our free will. Um, and, and next, uh, Wesley uh, called what he called the political image. And this is a political in a, in a way that we don't really uh, mean today, uh, but, but essentially he meant our responsibility to and for and our relationship to the rest of creation. You see, God, God charged all of humanity with a, a, a mission, a, a task to steward creation. He gave us dominion over the earth to work and to tend and to care for it. And, and God created us to be his image bearers throughout the world. And we have a mission and a purpose as God's image bearers. 
Finally, the moral image of God, which Wesley described as righteousness and true holiness. Um, and, and this includes love and grace and truth and goodness and purity, Christ-like character uh, that, that it can be summarized and, and behavior that can be summarized as self-giving. Those are aspects of the image of God in humanity. That's creation. The image of God in all people, which means, it means that everybody has dignity and worth. I don't care who you are, where you live, what, what your background is, what your sexual preference, any of that, any of that. You have dignity and worth because you are created in God's image. Basic human rights is grounded in this biblical worldview that believes that all people were created in the image of God. But that's just the beginning of a biblical worldview. We, we have another part. God's very good creation experienced a fall. Genesis chapter 3 talks about the rebellious sin of Adam and Eve. And we see this rebellion amplified through Genesis chapter 11. Um, and the fall resulted in several consequences, which I can't get into all of right now. But, but in short, all of, of creation was affected. But in particular, humanity experiences, as a result, three components of sin. First, infirmities. Infirmities are where we fall short of God's created perfection, but not by our choices. Uh, these are just effects of sin that we were born into because of our fallen world. I think you can relate to these. Things like physical infirmities, uh, disabilities, uh, uh, labor pains, even death itself. Uh, we also are affected by intellectual infirmities, poor memory. Anybody getting that? Uh, you know, illogical thinking and, and the like. Um, and emotional infirmities. Sometimes uh, we react poorly to others. We have mood swings. Our emotions are uh, just sometimes out of our control. And uh, there, there are also social infirmities. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you where, where you're in a, in a conversation with somebody and to the depth of who you are, it, you, you, your motives are pure, you're, you're, you're speaking clearly, and for whatever reason, there's miscommunication. Somebody doesn't understand exactly what you're saying, and, and, and then there's conflict and, and a broken relationship as a result. That's, those are infirmities, things that fall short of God's created good but are nobody's direct fault. But we are also infected by a state of sin. The Bible often refers to this as our sin nature, uh, our flesh. It's a deep down brokenness, a self-centeredness, an unhealthy self-love. And our state of sin, it corrupts our thoughts and our desires and our feelings and our motives. Uh, the state of sin it warps God's image in us. And all of humanity is born into this state of sin. It's not who we are. We are created in God's image, but it does describe how we are because of the effects of the fall. And this deep down state of sin leads us often to acts of sin. And this is exactly what it sounds like. Willful disobedience, and rebellion. Now, here's the really bad news about the fall. Sin 
completely corrupts and destroys the image of God in us. Well, we are hopeless to do anything about our plight on our own. At this point, I know you're thinking, wow, biblical worldview really is depressing. Uh, and, and if we stopped here, then it would be. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, here's some really great news about a biblical worldview. You, you see, God still loves us despite our sin. God wants to save us. Genesis chapter 12 through Revelation chapter 20, which for those of you unfamiliar with the Bible, that's like the whole Bible, except for a few chapters at the beginning and a couple chapters at the end. Uh, they outline God's redemptive work culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the birth of his church, God's redemptive agents in the world today. And, and the goal of redemption, you need to hear this, this is cool. The goal of salvation, redemption, is that God would restore all of his image in us. To restore the full political and moral image of God in persons as we carry out the mission of God in this world, which is to reflect his holy essence, to reflect his image, the, the image of Christ to the very ends of the earth. And God restores his image in us by pouring out his grace, his unmerited favor, his unconditional love for his creation. Now, here's what's, what's really cool. At least it's cool for me. Indulge me. Uh, John Wesley understood God's grace to work in a variety of ways. Uh, first, a provenient grace. Grace that we are born into. Provenient grace uh, does many things. Uh, but, but here are two key things that it does. First, it restores some of God's image in us. Well, we're born into a restored, partially restored image of God. Uh, provenient grace doesn't restore everything. Uh, sin still distorts the image of God in us. But enough of God's image is restored in us to do this other second key thing of provenient grace. To recognize our sin. And to respond to God's offer of salvation by repenting. To deny ourselves. Now, repentance is the recognition and remorse for our sin and turning from it to God. But we recognize our sinful acts and even our sinful nature, and we turn to God. And when we turn to God, we actually, we receive more grace. Grace upon grace. That's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 16. We deny ourselves and follow him, and that's how we find our true selves as he restores the image of God in us when we respond to his voice, his leading. And, and we receive even more of his grace. Uh, and first, we respond to his grace by repenting from our personal acts of sin. And we receive God's justifying grace as we are made right with God. But we are forgiven at that time, we also receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit, which is God's very presence indwelling in us, which continues to bestow grace upon grace in our lives as we respond to his voice, as we respond to his leading. And responding more and more to God's voice and receiving more and more of God's grace in our lives is called the process of sanctification. We repent from our sinful nature, 
our, our deep-rooted pride and self-will. And God, over time, fills us with perfect love. We become more and more like Jesus. And God's political image, our, our calling and our mission in the world begins to take shape. And, and, and God's moral image is slowly restored in our lives. Sanctifying grace tackles our deep-rooted sinful nature uh, defined by unhealthy self-love and transforms us to being filled with love for God and love for neighbor, self-giving love. That's redemption. And it's made possible by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we mature and we grow in our faith, more and more of God's image is restored in us. But the work is never fully complete. Some of you have been on this journey with Jesus for a long time. It's never fully complete until we are united with God in glory. And then and only then will our infirmities be dealt with and all of God's image will be restored in us. And at that time, all the effects of sin, which are many, will be undone. And we will experience the fullness of God's intended creation. That's why we understand this is the finale of a biblical worldview, consummation. And it is beautiful to read about. There are glimpses of it, a foretelling of it throughout Scripture, but you get it most pronounced in the very last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, God restoring all things. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's a biblical worldview. Now, why do I share all of that this morning? Here's why. Because when we approach difficult topics like can same-sex sexual practice honor God? As Christians, we must start from a biblical worldview. And that, that's the framework that we have to start in responding to any difficult question. Uh, furthermore, our Wesleyan heritage is one where we understand the Bible to be our main authority for living a life that honors God and leads to human flourishing. Now, truthfully, there are many United Methodists out there who don't believe that the Bible is our main authority for life. Uh, in fact, many of our United Methodist seminaries actively teach and undermine the authority of the Bible for individual life and the life of the church. And that's a big problem, uh, one that I can't tackle right now. Uh, but I believe what the scriptures say, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the way that we know the Lord is through his word. And if we pick and choose what we follow and what we do not follow, then, then really what we're doing is we, we've just made ourselves God and we trust in our own wisdom and discernment above God's wisdom. But you also need to know that there are many faithful United Methodist pastors and lay people who do fear God, who do their best to live under the authority of God's word, and simply disagree about how to best interpret and apply the Bible's teaching on human sexuality, uh, same-sex sexual practice in particular. Y you need to know that. Uh, I believe the best about people. I believe the vast majority of people want to do what is right. 
And when we disagree, even passionately disagree, it's important to realize that those who think differently than me or you really do want to love God and love people. Uh, some will say, love is love. And yet there really is a deep disagreement about what kind of love it is that we're even talking about. Self-love or self-giving love or, or, or what? So the overarching question that, that this series seeks to answer and respond to is that from a biblical worldview, with the Bible as our authority, how do we best love God and love people within the realm of human sexuality? Uh, or to put it another way, uh, what is holy sexuality? And we'll get to that in this series. Uh, but, but first, uh, I think we need to be able to identify where expressions of our sexuality fall within the biblical framework that I've, I've kind of already outlined and, and been talking about. So let's learn from something really important that Jesus taught. It's a key passage uh, from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 7. And Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. He said this, he said, what comes out of you is what defiles you. For from within, out of your hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile you. Based on what Jesus taught here and many other places in the scripture, it seems to me that he has identified sexual immorality as something that comes out of our deep-rooted sin nature. And it, it reveals itself in acts of sin. As people with bodies, and I've yet to meet a person who doesn't have a body, uh, God gave us the good gift of sexuality. And sexual immorality comes from a distortion of this good gift, and it's a byproduct of the, the damaged moral image of God in us. The, the self-giving intention of sexuality becomes self-loving and self-gratifying. Now, according to Jesus and, and the rest of the biblical witness, sexual behavior is a moral issue. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, there are uh, seven other lists of sins like this, like Jesus spoke, you know, just kind of listing a whole bunch. And, and sexual immorality is found in every one. In fact, it heads the list in, in several of these lists. And these are lists that identify behaviors that, if unrepented from, exclude people from the kingdom of God. And you need to understand that the living in the kingdom of God is all about living out of God's fully restored image in our lives. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And all that to say, things like murder and theft and arrogance and deceit and sexual immorality are all significant moral issues that have no place in God's kingdom. They were never a part of God's good intention for humanity. Now, now the Greek word for sexual immorality in these passages is a word that, that you should know for the next few weeks. The word is pornea. And you can see from that word that uh, from it comes the word pornography. 
in our word today. So you can kind of understand the, the kind of the root meaning of the word. As a pastor, I deal with the effects of pornea, sexual immorality all the time. More than I ever thought I would. I deal with it all the time because everyday people, church people, give into the lie that following through on your sexual desires brings you fulfillment. That somehow, some way, it fills uh, that hole of longing or that hole of loneliness or, or, or that it's a, a pleasurable escape from the sadness and the pain of life. But indulging in sexual immorality, it never brings wholeness, never. It overpromises and it underdelivers. And as a pastor, I have been invited to walk through some very dark places with people when they begin to realize that truth and they want out. I've seen how rampant sexual promiscuity and, and a hookup culture destroys and breaks people's souls. People from the teenage years through widowed seniors. I've walked with people trying to get out of selling their bodies sexually. And, and, and some trying to break free from an addiction to buying sex. I, I've seen marriages broken. because they've gotten hooked up into a swinging lifestyle. I can't tell you how many men and even some women who have shared with me how an addiction to pornography is breaking them and destroying their relationships. I've had dozens of people confess adulterous affairs to me and how the guilt is, is all-consuming. I've also walked through the pain of a family being broken because the dad wanted a divorce against the will of his wife and his children to pursue same-sex attractions. And I've pastored numerous people who have acted out in any number of these ways because they themselves had been abused sexually at some point in their past. And all of this in the church these aren't just scenarios that I've made up. These are real people with names that I love, that God loves. Folks, you, you may not see the devastation of sexual immorality. Some of, some of you have, but I know that I have. And I've walked through the pain of picking up the pieces with people in the midst of some of the darkest and most destructive brokenness there is. These are the stories that you don't hear, at least not often, and the stories that many of us would, would just simply like to ignore. And for every one of these people who have had the courage to come forward and ask for help and, and seek direction, there are dozens of others who are still stuck in, in the darkness and the denial. And, and if that's you, today in any way, shape, or form, please, please know that you are not alone and that there is help for you. Just like following Jesus, it is not an easy road. 
but it is worth it. And it is so much better than the darkness that you may presently find yourself in. That would be a great New Year's resolution to follow through on, to get the help that you need to get out of those dark places because it's destroying you. But around pornea, there is some biblical debate. What sexual behaviors are included in pornea? Specifically, in the United Methodist dilemma, is all same-sex sexual practice included in pornea? Now, the church has historically, throughout the ages, has agreed that yes, all same-sex sexual practice is sexual immorality. But in the last 50 to 60 years, that's been challenged. And there's a significant segment of our denomination that suggests that a committed, monogamous, same-sex marriage isn't included in a biblical understanding of sexual immorality, pornea. Is it or isn't it? It's pretty clear that the cultural tides have shifted in the Western world over the last few decades, uh, but what does the Bible have to say? Um, th these are the questions that, that we're going to be exploring from a variety of viewpoints over the next few weeks. But full disclosure here, I believe that the biblical evidence strongly indicates that pornea includes all sexual activity outside a lifetime covenant marriage between one man and one woman, including all same-sex sexual practice. And I believe that our United Methodist Church's stance has largely, not perfectly, but largely been faithful to the biblical witness and a biblical worldview. But please know that I have many close people in my life who see differently than me. And I love them. I, I respect them. And so to be fair and open, I intend to walk through the Bible in this series and, and wrestle with the best questions and best arguments from those who, like me, believe that the biblical evidence is such that, that all same-sex sexual practice is considered immor uh, sexually immoral and that those who believe that there may be room to affirm some same-sex sexual practice. But here's why this matters and why it will likely split our denomination. Because our sexual behaviors and practices, they're moral issues. What we do with our body really does matter. And I'll talk more about that next week. But restoring the moral image of God in us is, is all about discipleship. It's about denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following Jesus, becoming more and more the people that, that he created us to be, apart from sin's distortions. And if our sexual practices are a discipleship issue, and our main mission as a church is to become disciples and make disciples of Jesus, then it's pretty important that we understand what honoring God with our bodies really looks like. We better be clear about how God intends us to express our sexuality. Because if we're not clear, then we are missing out on God's goal of redemption. We're missing out on God restoring his full image in our lives. And it is so damaging to send mixed messages on this or to simply ignore it because it's uncomfortable. So this is your invitation for the following five weeks. No matter how uncomfortable this may be for you, it will be worth it to wrestle with the scriptures together in this series. 
And next week, we'll be looking at a theology of the body and how our present cultural worldview really just butt heads uh, with, with a biblical worldview. And then in week three, I will define holy sexuality, the, the expressions of sexuality that the Bible does affirm. And in weeks four and five, we're going to do the, the nitty-gritty work of dissecting the specific passages of the Bible that directly address same-sex sexual practice and ask the really hard questions like, what is it that it's really talking about, and does this, is this still relevant for us today, and in what ways? And then in week six, on February 9th, uh, I will share a vision for a way forward in mission and ministry for our church. And you won't want to miss that week. Uh, I'll share very specifically what we will do and what we won't do uh, as we ask the, the difficult question, what would Jesus do? But between now and then, please, please pray. Follow along in your prayer journal. Uh, you might consider joining us this Wednesday night at, in the sanctuary at 6.30 p.m. for our a monthly worship and prayer night. We'll, we'll be praying about all of this. Uh, but most importantly, let's let God's word speak to us about the ways each of us needs to turn from our deeply rooted sin nature and turn toward God. Let's pray together. Well, God Almighty, we, we do confess that we have fallen short of your holiness. Your beautiful image in us has been corrupted by sin, that it is so deeply rooted in our hearts, sometimes we don't even realize it. We are a broken people, God. We are a broken church, and we feel the depth of our sickness. We recognize our sin, and we pray earnestly for your forgiveness. And we also humbly ask for your spirit to guide us over the next several weeks as, as we seek to best love you and love others according to your word. Lord, help us think deeply and reflect on the scriptures. We need you to teach us. Keep our minds and our hearts open to your wisdom and help us to trust you when your wisdom conflicts with our own. And when we disagree with others about what your word really says. And Lord, I feel compelled to pray for anyone who has felt marginalized and excluded by the church because of their sexual practices. As a church body and, and as individuals, Lord, we repent from pride and arrogance and any time we've pronounced judgment and condemned people. Lord, Lord, have mercy on us. Transform us. And Lord, would you take our experiences of pain or rejection and somehow, some way, turn them for good? The same, the same really goes for these next few weeks, despite the fact that some of us would rather avoid these controversial subjects. We ask that, that you would meet us in our wrestling with your word and do a deep work in us that could never be accomplished unless we met you in the difficult places. Lord, we humbly ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.